In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. When Alice and I were first married, we lived on the bottom floor of a classic New New England three-decker. Three one-bedroom apartments stacked one on top of another in a three-story house. Now, you could tell that this was a really deluxe apartment because there was a yard in the back. You could tell it wasn't a very deluxe apartment because it wasn't much of a yard. It was about 15 feet by 15 feet. Uh, There was no grass. It was really just a bunch of mulch and dirt with a fire escape coming down and our neighbor's fire pit there. And I put my grill out there too. But at the beginning of what must have been our second summer there, Alice and I came up with the great idea that we were going to plant a garden. We drove out to the Home Depot about one town over, and, uh, and you can tell this was before we had a baby. We bought uh, a little raised garden bed that I nailed together, and we bought some soil that we put into it, and we bought a bunch of those little seedling kind of plants you can get at a garden store. We knew that we couldn't be trusted to grow anything from actual seeds. And we put that little bed there, and we planted our vegetables, and we waited, like the good yuppies that we are, to eat our extremely local produce. Well, fast forward a few months into the spring. You have never seen such pathetic vegetables in your life. Tiny lettuce plants shriveled up, if this is even possible, smaller than they had been when we first bought them. Bulbous zucchini, two and a half inches long, covered in strange protuberations and nibbled everywhere by chipmunks and squirrels. The only things that really grew well were our herbs, which meant that I was cooking with so much basil and mint that Alice was completely sick of them both by mid-July, and we still had pounds and pounds of leaves to go through. But the tomatoes were a different story. Along with that little raised bed in the back, Almost as an afterthought, we'd bought a couple of tomato plants to put in three beat-up old planters that an old tenant had left along the side of the building. We didn't even buy enough soil to fill them, so we just had whatever was left in there. But whether it was something about the soil that had been in those planters or something about the way that the sun was, the tomatoes grew incredibly well. The fruits became so big that they snapped first the stems of the tomato plants then the little wooden skewers we had used to stake them, and then they toppled over the big metal cages we had put there to support them. We held off eating those tomatoes for as long as we possibly could, and then every single night of August and September, we ate salad after salad made with the best tomatoes you've ever eaten in your entire life. Unless, of course, you've grown your own, in which case you know that yours are always the best tomatoes you've ever eaten in your life. So imagine that you had planted this garden. Imagine that you had a small amount of space with a certain amount of sunlight and a certain amount of shade, and you planted some really awful vegetables and some pretty decent herbs and some really fantastic tomatoes, and then you'd settle down to wait out the winter. The next year, when it came to be springtime again and you were getting back to gardening, what would you plant? I ask this because, to me, today, it's the most interesting question about the parable of the sower. Most of us know this story pretty well. Uh, Someone goes out in a field to sow seeds, and some they throw onto a path, and they get eaten up by the birds. And some fall onto a thin and rocky soil, 
and they kind of sprout up, but then they get scorched. And some fall into the thorns, and they're choked up. But some falls onto good, rich soil, and it grows and grows and grows, and bingo, tomato bonanza. But this message apparently isn't obvious enough for the disciples who ask Jesus why he always speaks in such confusing parables in the verses we skip over in the gospel reading. And he says to them, well, you know, these are given to some people so that some will understand and some won't. And they say, well, can you help us out? And so Jesus explains to them, the bird is the wily devil, always ready to snatch away the seeds of spiritual growth. The rocky soil is the kind of short-term, passionate, hobbyist Christian who gushes about their newfound faith for a couple of years but never has the deep roots to get through a hard time and moves on soon enough to another new interest to spend their Sunday mornings. The thorns are the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, which have always done their best to distract us from our lives with God. And the good soil, he says, is the one who hears and understands the word of God. And you can imagine the look on the disciples' faces as they realize that this is a little pointed at them because they are the ones who have just heard but not understood the word of God and need it explained to them. So fair enough, Jesus. This is a nice lesson. But I want to know what happens next. I don't mean what happens next in the Gospel of Matthew. I actually do know what happens next in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus goes on to tell a couple of other seed-themed parables. He's apparently got seeds on the brain. And so next Sunday, we'll hear the parable of the wheat and the weeds, and then the Sunday after that, the parable of the mustard seed. But I mean what happens in the story of this parable itself. What happens after this particular harvest? The next time the sower goes out to sow, what does she do? Does she throw more seed onto that hard path? Does she scatter it into the rocky ground and on the thorns? Does she take a big handful and just toss it away because, well, nothing worked last time? Or does she remember the good soil that did work and head straight there and plant things again? People will debate whether the sower is God and you're either good soil or rocky soil, or whether the sower is you and the different kinds of soil are the world around you and the people and places to whom you spread the word of God, or whether the sower is the Holy Spirit and the soil is different parts of your own soul or all sorts of different interpretations. If you'd been in the men's discussion group or the women's Bible study this week, you would have heard many of those same things. And these are probably all true in their own way. The remarkable thing about this parable is that Jesus explains so many things the second time around. He explains what the different kinds of soil are supposed to mean, but he never tells you who the sower is or what this is all really about. And from Jesus, that's usually uh, a suggestion that multiple interpretations are okay, that we can take this and apply it to different areas of our life and different kinds of meaning. And so... I'd like this morning, at least, to imagine this, that you are the sower and that your attention and your energy are the seed out into the fields of your life and you have to choose where to scatter that seed. We're all used to taking different levels of risk in our life. Some of us like to hedge our bets and some of us like to double down. And so some of us, if we had grown good plants in one kind of soil one year, uh, might 
spread our seed around different areas just to see what sprang up in case it didn't work again. And others would go straight for that patch of good soil, put all their seed there, knowing that that was the really good spot. But I think that almost everyone would agree that the sower should sow more seed in the good soil, or at least should focus on the good soil. Almost everyone would agree that the next year after our tremendous success, Alice and I should have planted twice the tomatoes and half the lettuce. We didn't, actually. I'm not joking, we're really bad gardeners. And to be fair, we only had a limited number of those planters. And so the next year we ended up with some nasty, weird cucumbers and a lot of herbs and some really wonderful tomatoes again. We live in a world that emphasizes the importance of being well-rounded. And that's important for what it's worth. It's good for our engineers and scientists to read a little poetry and for our poets to do a little calculus, if only because the engineers make decisions with huge human consequences and the poets have to understand the compounding interest on their student loans. But I do worry that in the pursuit of becoming well-rounded, we sometimes hold back from diving in fully to the things that really give us life, the things that really bear fruit. We sometimes spend so much time and energy raking out the rocks from the bad soil and picking up those weeds that are threatening to choke back what we're doing that we forget to revel in the 30 and 60 and 100-fold bounty that's waiting for us just around the corner in those planters just on the other side of the yard. Sometimes we think that we ought to enjoy yoga more, or we ought to get more out of meditation, or we ought to spend more time getting to know one another in coffee hour, or whatever it may be. And so we keep trying in those areas, even if they're not fulfilling, even though we're only barely scratching out a few squirrel-eaten summer squashes from them. Over and over again, we throw the seeds of our attention on soil that simply doesn't bear fruit. And this isn't just in our spiritual lives, in our religious lives. You might recognize the same thing in the way you use social media or watch cable news. It's been an odd few months. We'll have an odd few more. It was a wonderful thing to give this sermon for the first time this morning to an actual congregation who I could see. You're an actual congregation too, I just can't see your faces. But in some ways, this transitional moment, I think, when we begin regathering in person, in the church and in the rest of our lives, is a moment to search for and consider the ways in which our gardens have been growing this spring and this summer. Maybe you're an introvert who's finally gotten time for some peace and quiet. Sow your seed there. Give yourself the permission to say no to an invitation and stay and enjoy your solitude. Or maybe you're an extrovert who's loved getting to see your kids or grandkids on a screen more than you usually do in person. Cultivate that field. Keep up that tradition and don't take no for an answer, even from the introverts. Just kidding. Or maybe you're a parent who's gone so mad trying to work from home every day with who knows what causing that banging noise down at the other end of the hallway. And you've been so annoying about it that your spouse has banished you outside for half an hour in a kind of adult timeout, just hypothetically. Find the place where you go, whether it's a physical place or a mental place, when you're completely spent, when you need that break, when you need those 30 minutes off, and go back when you need it. Not just during the inevitable disaster of this fall, 
But months or years from now, when life is back to a normal amount of crazy, and you still badly need a break. And take a look around at your life in this church. We're doing things now that don't come naturally to us, that don't feel like the good soil we're used to, and yet things have sprouted up. People have said, maybe that meeting never needed to be in person, or maybe I always want to be able to come to Bible study when I'm on vacation. People say, maybe we should have movies every summer. Or people say, maybe we should always call each other more on the phone just to see how we're doing. Look for those plants, look for those seeds, gather them up and remember them for the time ahead. Don't worry in other things, in other words, about all the things in your life that you're not good at, that don't bear good fruit all the things that are choked up, or all the things that are falling on rocky ground. Find just one thing that's bearing good fruit. Find one thing that's giving you life, and pour yourself into it. Because who knows, that good soil might once again bear fruit, 30 or 60 or 100 fold. Amen. Amen.